This Trib Live event was recorded in front of a live audience and was generously supported by AT&T, Christus Health, BP, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Texas Coalition of Dental Service Organizations, and also by Educate Texas. For more information on the Texas Tribune and the dozens of free Trib Live events the Tribune hosts each year, go to texastribune.org. Honorable Kel Seliger. <laughs> Sir, thank you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you right there. Nice to see you. So just so we're straight, I'm going to ask you all the same questions I asked you last week, but you're going to give completely opposite answers. Uh, my, pro my problem is, is I really can't remember last week, oh, so, so it's I like, don't so know what those answers it's are. It's organically spontaneous. They're all that. new to me. Actually, I thought I'd begin with something totally brand new to this day, uh, okay. uh, and that is uh, the release today of a report from the Texas Coalition on Excellence in Higher Education you may have seen. An organization that, uh, that came into existence uh, as a way to uh, respond to or push back on, uh, on some of the calls for higher ed reform uh, last year. Uh, that report found, among other things, that the University of Texas at Austin and Texas A&M, the flagships of those two systems, are doing a good job. They say uh, their independent report, UT's tuition and fees are about $1,000 below its peer institutions nationally. A&M's are $2,000 below and they're both among the leaders nationally in the conferral of bachelor's degrees. So I guess we're, we fixed higher ed. You can just disband your committee. Everything's fine. <laughs> that, that's fine. We'll find something else to do. You will. But the challenge remains. Mm. And so now it's time to, to look at what the challenges are going to be the future and work toward that. Yeah. Um, you, next, you subscribe to that optimistic view of the way A&M and UT particularly are doing? Absolutely, but I don't limit my optimism to those two institutions because they're institutions around the state right. doing great jobs. I represent a district that has six community college systems in it and two universities, yeah. West Texas A&M and Canyon University of Texas Permian Basin, and there are, there are centers of excellence everywhere in yeah. the state. Um, that they have some real challenges now and in the future. Right. Now this report also was careful to say, well, on the, on the financial efficiency side, let's, let's call it, and on the degree conferral side that UT and A&M are doing well, this report said that where they were not doing well was in four-year graduation rates. This is a topic of, of great conversation right now. Um, education Secretary, former Education Secretary Spellings, when she uh, was coming to town for the TAB higher ed event last week, uh, had an op-ed in, in the American Statesman in which she said, you know, basically if it's 50% is the top, more or less, uh, on the four-year graduation rate, that, that's simply not acceptable. Uh, do, you, do you agree that we should be concerned about graduation rates for four years? We should state? always be seeking to improve, yeah. but, but is this all the university or is it the populace that is going to college today? Uh, uh, increasingly, college is more expensive. There's an affordability yeah. sort of thing. More and more people have to work as they go to college and, right. and, and support families. And so there are a lot of things that work into that, I think. It's not just, is the university not trying hard enough mm -hmm. to graduate in four or six years? Is the four-year metric an outmoded metric? Should we no longer be talking about a four-year graduation rate as a measure of success? I would argue that, no, it's not outdated at all. And yeah. the reason it's not yeah. is because of the community college system, because of things like dual credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful system, and as we discussed and I, I've talked about, in some ways it sort of obviated the need of the victory lap, that fifth year of college that almost every undergraduate would love to have. But to go into to college now with 24 to 30 credits, they're in there. The other thing, and one of the most inspirational things that I've seen, yeah. once again with the community college, is early college high school. I was in one about, uh, about three weeks ago 
with young people, and this particular group of young people was yeah. important because they were people when, when they brought them in in the ninth grade, were all going to be first generation students. Parents hadn't gone to college. Yeah. They really were looking at going in the workforce. And they started talking. And, and these are young people. In this particular group, it was interesting. There was one Anglo male, <clears throat> two African American, the balance were Latino, and none of their parents had gone to college. These young people were going to go to college. They knew what degrees they were going to pursue. Yeah. And at no additional cost to them, they were going to graduate from high school with both high school diplomas and associate's degrees. Yeah. And, and so I would say, is, is, is the four-year degree becoming outmoded? No, I think it's got a new vitality. And it's important to consider that, that with a growing population, that we would like to go to college and be prepared. We, the state of Texas, needs these young people to go to college and get out and make available those seats for the next group of kids going in. Right. But as you well know, and as you've alluded to, the population of students entering institutions today, higher ed institutions, are, are very different from the population that entered last generation, say. Right. Many more are working, many more have delayed going to school. The, the circumstances, in, in some instances, work against them getting out in the traditional four years. So you have some going five years, six years, or, or, or longer. In theory, whenever they get out, as long as they get out and they get out with an education and a degree, we ought to be willing to accept that, right? Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. So it's not just the four years. It's not just getting them out quickly, but it's getting them out, period. In fact, what Chairman Branch has done on the House side and the governor has talked about is tying state funding of higher education in some degree to outcomes as opposed to enrollments. Right. Right. Talk, talk about where you come down as the new chairman of the Senate uh, Higher Ed Committee on, on that and as it relates to at what point you count an outcome as an acceptable outcome. I, I think there is a lot of momentum behind the idea yeah. and quite frankly in academia too. As I travel around and talk to chancellors and presidents, they have no problem. Uh, but it's far more complex than just your graduation rate. Yeah. Um, in fact, you're going to have a tough time to find one or two metrics, and that's why what I have asked presidents and chancellors to do to, to help me yeah. is help us develop the metric. What, when is the university really doing its job? And, and I don't really have the answer to that, but it's more than just graduation rate in four and six years. At the University of Texas, there are a couple of exams that are given. Yeah. That, that can show growth. I don't know that that's necessarily the, the right prescription for every uh, institution of higher learning, but it's one of them. What, what, what would be some other metrics that you would look to potentially as, as good metrics? As I think says? things like retention rates from first to second year yeah. and through the third year. Uh, examinations may be the answer. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, uh, in, in some ways, education and employment at the same time. Is, is probably a gauge or a partial gauge of how we're doing. Yeah. This report that I alluded to, the Higher Ed Coalition report, talked about the cost of an education where UT and A&M fit tuition and fees relative to other institutions. A lot of discussion of what a, a, a college education in Texas costs these days. Uh, Governor, in fact, you know, put down his marker last year in the State of the State speech about a $10,000 college degree is now talking about the predictability of tuition at the beginning of four years, how that ought to be a goal that we work toward at universities, uh, how do we get a control uh, on, on, on cost? Do you, do you share the concern that some have that it's, it costs too much to get an education in the state of Texas now? It, it clearly is an expensive proposition, and for some families, unaffordable. But, but we have to look at that in light of the diversity of opportunities, and so one can say, well, the education at the University of Texas is pretty expensive. 
the education at Texas State is substantially less expensive, and yeah. the University of Texas Permian Basin less than that, and community colleges that are substantially right. uh, below the national average, even less expensive there. So it's a continuum. It is a continuum. And, and then we have to answer the question, to what degree should the state bear those expenses? To what, to what extent should the taxpayer bear those expenses? Right. And to what extent should the student, and, and you and I have talked about things like, like student debt, which is, which is a real a potential problem. Well, right now, student debt exceeds credit card debt in this country. Everyone says it's like the housing bubble was. It's the next great bubble that we have to get control of. We have talked about debt, but as we incur debt yeah. through our lives, is there a debt in which one can expect a greater dividend or benefit over a lifetime yeah. than that debt incurred in getting higher education? I think not. You think that the value of incurring debt in that case is undeniable? It's uh, absolutely undeniable and, right. and yields a dividend. Empirically, as right. we look at how much more a person can expect to, to make during their lifetime if they have a high school diploma, two years of college, and four years of college, right. um, and it's clear empirically, but I think over time that uh, it has a great deal of value, monetary value. There's been some discussion that the cost of a, a college education in Texas has gotten to be so high, and I put that in quotes because it's all relative, Right. that the legislature might think about going back in and perish the thought re-regulating tuition. Is that an open possibility during this session that you all might come in and look at jimmying with this again? I think there are people who certainly in, intend to do that. Are you I one of those people? I think, it's, I think it's an issue that we ought to address because it's a, a, the source of concern to a lot of the people who send us to Austin. Yeah. Uh, one, we have to make sure that we don't base that metric solely upon the University of Texas, Texas A&M, and University of Texas, Dallas. For somebody who does not have those, uh, I, I sort of am insistent and say, let's talk about UTPB and let's talk about West Texas A&M, but let's also talk about UT Pan Am and UT Tyler and, and those places and talk about what it really costs yeah. because the cost of higher education is not just the cost here in Austin or in College Station. Yeah. Um, I think that, that we shouldn't have, the discussion has now gone more to um, talk about inflation, which is a real cost that must be addressed by the state and all of its agencies, and why not by higher education? If we re-regulate, just exactly how are we going to re-regulate and meet the needs of institutions of whom we ask a great deal and will ask more? Right. We, that has to be done very, very carefully. I think that the institutions hear very loudly and clearly when people in the legislature say that their vote to deregulate tuition was one of the worst ones they ever made. I don't think anybody, if you had told members of the legislature exactly what the increases in tuition would have been from deregulation to the present, uh, there would have been no more than three or four votes in the legislature to do it. There's a cautionary note there, but I think it's being heard loud and clear. But of course the tension, Mr. Chairman, is between what the universities need to do and do do on the cost of a college education and the decline in the state's share of contribution to higher ed funding. I believe at UT, my colleague Ross Ramsey said, that from 1984 to today, the share of, of the state's contribution to higher ed went from something like 50% to 13%. There's a point at which the state is almost by default getting out of the business of funding higher ed when you get down to that level. So if the state is not gonna put in the money, what do the universities have to do but look at their own tuition costs possibly going up? Where, where, is, where is the inflection point there between those two things? I'm not sure that the, that can be answered apparently can't be answered by me. Um, 
we have to weigh that very, very carefully. And 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 are all the university's goals and their plans completely justifiable? Because as being being state universities, they have to get that money very much from the taxpayers. Yep. And we answer to them too. Yeah. And and where's the inflection point? I don't know, but there has to be a balance point. Is the state funding higher let me ask you straight away, is the state funding higher education today adequately? I don't know that I can answer that. But why, would, why not? One would have to say that it's not inadequate because look at all the great universities doing the great job. Clearly it is not a complete disconnect or failure because so many of them are doing such a good job in all parts of the state. You, Something's working. You have presidents and chancellors in, in this room with you. Do you think if, if I asked them whether uh, higher ed was adequately funded by the state that they would say yes or I don't know? I think they'd probably say no. If you put 50 more billion dollars from general revenue into higher education tomorrow, they'd say the same thing. So you think that there's no end to the amount of funding that they would like if that were... Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're not prepared to say as the incoming chairman of Senate Higher Ed whether the state is doing an adequate job of funding higher ed. You, you don't feel like you know, you, you know the answer to that? No, because, but I don't think you can define adequate. Why not? I guess there's a lawsuit over that right now, isn't there? No, that's, in, that's in, in, in public ed. That's in public ed. Yeah. Um, uh, but but why, why can't you define it? Well, because you say it's inadequate, but yet you've got these universities, a lot of whom are growing and doing a very, very good job. Yeah. Something is working. Right. Sure, everybody can use more money, but, but is, do they need the more money really to do a good job or an excellent job? There's always more and there's always better and there, always, there is always bigger, yeah. but, but for the core mission, yeah. is it funded inadequately? Like I say, they can always use more money, but is it, is it truly inadequate in light of the fact yeah that uh, the taxpayer is going to have to foot the bill. But let me turn this around and ask the question a different way. Last right. session, financial aid funds were one of the things that got cut in a budget that cuts, saw cuts distributed across the board, right. not just in higher ed, but public ed and, and other areas. Do we adequately fund financial aid? After last session, where I think 10%, it, was a, it was a smaller cut than it had been imagined at the beginning of the session. Right. Do you think that we're adequately fu uh, funding financial aid these days, which for so many of the kids coming of age in Texas right now, big issue, a lot of concern about whether many of these kids would be first in their family to go to college, can afford to go to college. Uh, are we adequately funding the financial aid portion of higher ed, do you think? I would answer that by saying that it's something that we have to work on and improve because the increasing number of young people that are going to college and increasing costs, um, we cut the budget across the board. Right. And, and it's something that a lot of us felt really needed to be done given the, the fiscal situation in the state of Texas. Should it be one of our priorities going forward right. for things like Texas right. grants? Absolutely. Is that something you would expect to, uh, to go, going into the next session if the budget is better than it was last time in terms of available resources? Would you look to put money back into financial aid or other aspects of higher ed? We will not have that discussion of putting more money anywhere without doing it in, in, in higher ed, I think. You think that you will not have a discussion of putting money into any area unless you talk about putting it into higher ed? Higher ed, but right. that, that's kind of easy to say that. Yeah, yeah. Public ed looms large as 40% of the existing budget as right. well as transportation and criminal justice. Yes, we ought to discuss that. Well, it's not this versus not this. It's this versus a whole bunch of other yes. priorities for whom there are chairmen and advocates who are going to be out there scrambling to get every single available dollar. Absolutely. And right. the point that I would make is right. that we ask a great deal of higher education and we are going to ask a great deal, maybe even more, going forward is we wanted a well-educated and well-trained workforce right. and and it is an investment in our workforce that is going to yield substantial dividends. It is that workforce and it's tax policy and things like that but unquestionably 
for somebody who worked for a lot of years in economic development. Right. It is that workforce that is the cornerstone of, of the vitality of our economy going forward in the future. Is there an appetite for spending in the Texas legislature right now? We hear a lot since the governor came back from his adventure on the campaign trail about how we don't have a revenue problem in the state, we have a spending problem in the state. There are a lot of your colleagues who agree with that. You may very well agree with that statement in principle. And so as we go into a session where there may be more money available, I wonder whether there's an appetite among the 181 for spending, even if we have dollars available, spending money on things like higher ed when, again, we hear all the time we have a spending problem, we spend too much, not too little in the state. The, the point is for a lot of us, when we look at allocating funds, first, what are those areas where we can economize yeah. so that we may then prioritize? It's, it, to me, it's more that than it is a question of our, our problems are not spending problems, they're, they're, that they're, they're spending problems, yeah. not tax problems. We should address that first. We ought to try to be as efficient as we possibly can in every, every area because it's taxpayers' money. Are there areas in government where clearly we are going to have to spend more money over time? Absolutely. We know Medicaid is that way, and, and we know that, that public ed is just based upon formula growth, enrollment growth in the formulas. And, and so I don't get as much involved in the, the dialectic part of that as I do the fiscal reality part of it. Right. You mentioned financial efficiency, Mr. Chairman. That was at the center of so much of the discussion we had on higher ed reform last year driven by the governor and others. Uh, the governor didn't take a very positive view of the financial efficiency of, of many of the universities in the state, believed that there was a problem between uh, uh, faculty members who were not teaching an adequate uh, load, not bringing in enough dollars in quotes. There was this tension between teaching and research. You're well aware of the conversation yes, that took place. What can we expect on the higher ed reform discussion going into this session? It was, in some ways, much of the session was held captive to that conversation last time. Can we expect a similar thing this time? As you listen to the legislative appropriation requests, as all of the chancellors and the presidents, one of the things that they are going to focus on are those programs that are financially uh, efficient and those ones who yield to the institution. And, and I think that's very, very constructive. Uh, I've said this many times, universities are by their very nature inefficient because for every business course, we're gonna teach a course in Eastern religions and Shakespeare, and you can't get them on, a, they just aren't gonna go in a profit and loss statement. Yeah. But I think they have a great value to a, a nation and a state that values an educated population, because right. education consists of a lot of things. Right. But yes, there's gonna be a lot of discussion about, about efficiency and things like that, as there should be. Yeah. But in fact, you mentioned the profit and loss statement. In fact, much of the discussion seemed to regard higher ed in terms of a profit and loss statement. That's not how you view The discussion is not a bad one. It is a useful one, but right. we have to do it in the context of what, what an education really means to, to young people in the population. It's not the only one that we should be having. It is not the only discussion we should have. When you go into, uh, in, into the committee to chair it uh, 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 in, the, in the next session, what are the two or three issues that you're gonna be focused on? Obviously, we've been talking about price and cost. We've been talking about this, the, the success of universities in uh, raising graduation rates. Those seem to be low-hanging fruit, obvious things to talk about. What's, what else is on your mind as you go into the task of chairing this committee? I would like to see us put some money into uh, early college high school. I think it, it, it is just, it is one of the best things that we're doing right now. Right. Do I think it is going to be generalizable in very great numbers around the state? I'm not certain of that, but where it exists, it's of great value. Okay. 
uh, and success in initiatives in universities look at retention rates mm -hmm. and look at graduates and graduation rates and how we can help. My view of the legislature's role in higher education is how can we assist, both in budgetary terms, yep. much less in, in policy terms, those universities meet their mission goals. Right. And then we, we are part of the discussion of those mission goals because I think some of them ought to be efficiency and economy as well as growth mm -hmm. and provision of opportunities. But I think those are going to be some of the biggest issues. Clearly, it, it, when we talk about outcome-based funding, it is going to be a, a big topic. I met with a lot of, of presidents and chancellors about two weeks ago over at the Capitol, and, and really some of the most learned people in our state, I felt like a cab driver in a meeting of investment bankers. And, um, and, and what I told them was, w without putting it in terms that asking them to do our work for us, because of all you know about the institutions, you tell us what those outcomes ought to be, what we ought to be looking at. Right. Make sure that it, they are rigorous and challenging and really do represent value. But this is something that I think we ought to do together instead of some sort of top-down top approach, down, yeah. instead of a lot of people at the, at the Capitol who are not academicians prescribing it. What about demographics? We haven't talked about the changing population in Texas and what higher ed is going to need to do to get out in front of that, if it's still possible to get in front of it. In some ways, it may be to be responding as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, we obviously have a very fast-growing population, and it's not only growing in size, but changing in composition. Uh, it's often changing in location, where the population centers are located. So what does higher ed need to do to respond to that? I think higher ed is doing that now because those students are coming in now. We're seeing increasing student bodies. Uh, that are first-generation students, yeah. more and more of them for whom English is not their native language. Yeah. And uh, you name it, all kinds of different areas. And, and I think the institutions are responding to them today. Yeah. Our goal, I think, is simply to support that effort. And to provide resources where possible, but to provide support across, across, yeah. across support for those efforts. What about in-state tuition? This is a hot button that came up uh, repeatedly during the presidential campaign. In fact, there were some people who believed that where Governor Romney went wrong in the presidential campaign was when he got to the right of Governor Perry on in-state tuition in that debate in Florida. Uh, people are still talking about in-state tuition as a controversial issue, and many of your colleagues in the Senate, current Senator Patrick and Senator Eltif, and incoming Senators-elect Hancock and Paxson and, and Taylor, to name five, have all told me that they would support an effort to kick the state's policy of providing in-state tuition to the children of undocumented persons to the curb. They would vote to overturn the current policy and not offer in-state tuition. You're the chair of higher ed. It's going to come through your committee in theory. What do you think about that? And we are going to have a fair and robust debate about it, and ought to. We shouldn't have any illusions about what the execution of that policy will do. Do we think, and, and clearly, we will, some young people will not go in the university because they can't afford out-of-state tuition. Do we think for a moment that is going to affect immigration into this, into this state? No, because this is, is a question that boils down to border security. That's where it really distills down to. And so if this group of young people doesn't go to college, and once again, if, if they don't get in-state tuition at the University of Texas, what they will find is out-of-state tuition at um, 
take your pick, UT Tyler Palestine, for instance, may be a good deal more affordable. But does anybody think that people are going to make the decision not to come to this country, illegal or otherwise, because they can't get in-state tuition? No, it's not going to deal with the root cause. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are an awful lot of young people here who, without that sort of, of, of stigma or burden, that will also qualify for in-state tuition. Uh, do I think it's going to change higher education? Yeah. No, not a lot, but it ought to be a full discussion of it. You want to show your hand on where you come down on this issue? No, I don't. I very seldom vote in, in December on issues that are going to come up in April. Uh, even though many of, your, <laughs> many of your colleagues seem perfectly happy to do that. You don't want to join them in that, do you? No, I, I think that, that our considerations ought to be more deliberative than that. And, and clearly, I think that, that there's a big move toward that, right. and I understand it. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's also interesting that back in, in 2001, before 9-11, nine, uh, when Rick Perry allowed that to happen, I think that his thinking wasn't he and I have not discussed it, that he wanted the greatest number of people in the state of Texas to have the most education possible by whatever device. From a workforce point of view, that's, that's, that's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. add, in, add in a little bit of ideology and some politics, and it may not be the best thing for Texas right now. Mm -hmm. We'll have that discussion. That, that, I feel so you, and you expect to have that discussion Absolutely. In, in the committee. Let me ask you two more questions before we open it up to the audience, one serious and one less serious. <laughs> uh, last, last week at Texas A&M, I asked you about the cost of, uh, of, uh, of higher education and the state's contribution to that, and did, was there enough money in higher ed? And you brought up, without my prompting you, the $100 million that the UT system has announced they plan to spend on a new building downtown. And you did not bring it up in a positive way. You've had a week to think about this. Do you want to change your opinion about it? Um, or do you, you want to offer that same opinion? You seem to be quite skeptical about the need for this building at a time when UT, not just UT, but other systems are saying, we don't have enough money. They've somehow found money or expect to find money to, to build this new building. Uh, since you brought it up last week, I wondered if you would offer a point of view about that. Is this a serious question or not so serious This question? is a serious question. <laughs> okay. I have a really good not serious question planned for after this. Good. Yeah. Um, uh, no, my skepticism remains. I, I'm, I'm skeptical ab about a lot of things, but, but if this, this is a $100 million building that's going to house 700 system employees and educate not one student. Does this building make this a better system of universities mm -hmm. or the education more effective and efficient? Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Do I think that there's something that should be legislated about this building? Absolutely, I don't. I don't think that's the role of the legislature. That's the role of, of the Board of Regents. Um, well, but Mr. Chairman, in fact, what, what I've heard, you know, loose talk around town is loose talk, but what I've heard is that you are so unhappy about the plans by the system to build this building that you might say to them, if you all want to get tuition revenue bonds to build a new building at the College of Engineering, well, we'll see about that. You can either have the building downtown or the building for the College of Engineering, but you can't have both. And then make the, basically ram it up their nose. Oh, no. If you heard that, that was absolutely false. That's not I, true. It was, came right on the discussion of, of my deep disappointment in the halt of manufacture of ding-dongs. It had nothing to do with the university system. I'm not sure I even know what you're talking about. That's right. okay. Yeah, it is okay, I guess. That's okay. So you're not intending to, to hold any other things that the University of Texas system might want to do hostage to this plan to build this building? Evan, the, the expenditures of the system are 
altogether, and I guess entirely different from the university itself. This is the engineering building, $200 million. Yeah is a university project, not a system project, right. even though the system is going to put money in it. Right. And I think that, that we can see that we, we want and need that expanded uh, facility for the University of Texas. Now, is it all 200 million? I, I can't answer that. Right. But that's what we need. These this are unrelated. You're going to make these they are unrelated. unrelated. Right. The system building yeah. is for 700 people who is, is part of the mission there. Um, uh, uh, redundant with what goes on at the university anyway, which also has a large staff right. and employment. And so do I think we ought to legislate there? No, but what I would tell somebody if they want some more money for the system, yeah. my immediate inclination is to say, you got a lot of money, apparently plenty. Right. Okay. Uh, here's the non-serious question. Okay. Uh, your predecessor as chair of higher education is a graduate of the University of Texas. Yes. You are a graduate of Dartmouth. Yes. So we know that you know how to take a bedsheet and make it into a toga and shotgun a beer. <laughs> but beyond There's that... There's an awful lot of people that didn't know that before you brought it up. Well, you know that now. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, you obviously have a perspective that was shaped by your education, as mm -hmm. all of us have perspectives shaped by our education. You are a, a small private college guy, and full disclosure, so am I. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not asking it in a contemptuous way. Right. Uh, but I wonder, as, as the incoming chair of, of higher education, where you're going to be responsible for the lives and the livelihoods of so many people connected to the public universities, what does being a Dartmouth guy mean? What did it teach you, and how is your perspective different, say, from somebody who might have come out of the public university system? It, it means, as I pointed out to you last week, that I've lived with a, a lifetime of chagrin, the fact that, that uh, in football, University of Texas and A&M have been dodging us all these years. <laughs> Um, I, I, the, the distinction is, and, and I think you and I have discussed it before, is I view higher education as a system, not as silos consisting of the University of Texas, uh, Texas A&M, uh, Lamar, and things like that, as a system. And the system itself has a great deal of value with a great deal of contribution to be made by all those institutions. Uh, I am a big, big fan of higher education and think it has a great deal of, of value. I want our discussion to cover all of those institutions. Yeah. And, and not just UT and A&M. This is something that we've also talked about before, that as much as people think higher, M, higher ed in Texas means UT and A&M, I'm not just pandering to Chancellor McCall here, the reality is that there are six university systems plus an online system. Higher ed is much more than just UT and A&M, even though that seems to be where much of the conversation begins and ends. They have, they have great status, well-deserved, right. and, and stature, and in size, they are just simply big. But if you look at centers of excellence yeah. around the state, and, and Texas State, while, while we don't really have to throw a, a bone to Chancellor McCall, emotionally it's good for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it represents centers of true excellence, as do institutions like Texas A&M Galveston. Yeah. There's a unique institution. Uh, University of Texas Dallas, which is not just your basic academic university. And so we have all those things, and they are all in a way, so many of them crown jewels, and some of them becoming more prominent. Yeah. Um, what strikes me most as I travel around the state is the consistency and the quality of leadership in these systems and, and institutions. It is extraordinary. Yeah. So your focus will be really outside of just Austin and College Station, oh, as you, you intend for it to be started. I was at, at the University of Houston earlier in the week, and, uh, and their president is also their regent. 
and they have no system chancellor, office. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, the chancellor, yeah. and, and Dr. Couture, and a university that is today going to the next level. When we had the debate on the floor about, about tier one universities, everybody thought the discussion was really University of Texas Arlington and Texas Tech. Who thought that, that the leader kind of was gonna be the University of Houston? We didn't, we thought it was fine, we thought it was inevitable, yeah. but did we think that they were gonna be sprinting toward tier one status? That's just, a, 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 I think, a, a product of, of leadership. Well, let's leave it there. Leader, Chairman, uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate your being here. Let's give the Chairman a hand, please. And uh, we will now take questions from the audience on topics that we talked about and topics we didn't talk about. And Natalia will run around the microphone and, and get you to, to uh, ask your question into the mic. Please raise your hand if you have one. And please don't be shy. Gentleman right there in the maroon. Natalia, right there. You seem to have a question prepared. I do. It's Thank so you for that. I, well, I have no problem with that. Go. Good morning, I, Senator. I'm Reese Blinko, Superintendent of Schools in Brownwood ISD. Uh, I think it was last week, Superintendent at Amarillo uh, testified that 60% of their kids had not passed one or more parts of the uh, in the course exam. We saw similar rates at, at Brownwood. When Texas Education Code 51.803, which is the top 10% rule, was implemented, it required students just to complete the recommended graduation plan for, uh, <clears throat> to be eligible, <clears throat> excuse me, for top 10%. At the time, the recommended plan only required a series of courses. After the implementation of EOCs, the recommended plan now requires students to pass all 15 exams and make higher scores in Algebra two and Physics. Do you believe this would limit the student's eligibility into college? And do you believe this should be revisited? Yeah, what, what about that? And what about the 10% rule generally? Again, no, not uncontroversial, the 10% rule, as you know. Oh, I didn't know anybody noticed. Yeah, well. <laughs> I, I, I advocated several years ago we do away completely with the top 10% rule. And I think my view on that has matured because one of the things that the university have told me, and really there's only two affected, is the top 10% rule does do partially what was intended to do, which is increase minority enrollment, which I endorse. The, the, the point also is that, that the gains in minority enrollment in those universities is not large enough to justify a rule that dictates what 70, 80, and potentially 100% of those admissions should be to a university. I don't think the legislature by any device should run admissions departments in universities. And so we're going to address that. In my office, and, and while I chair higher ed, most of, of my legislative interest has been in public ed, and it was my original bill in which went the, the end of course exams, which is a vast improvement over tax test. Did it, did, it, did it spring into committee perfect? Absolutely it didn't. We're addressing the 15% again in an, on an interim basis. We need to address it on a permanent basis. Do we get real value in terms of accountability from it, and I am skeptical about that. We're gonna discuss things, some serious things like the number of exams. You know why the number of exams exists? Because I only do public ed legislation with input from educators. The input was, we have 15 relevant courses, let's have 15 exams, but to determine the, uh, the, the quality of teaching, accountability, promotability in graduation, do we need all 15, really? 
the, the accountability system ought to be a, a de minimis one. That let's, let's, let's test as little as possible to find out what we actually need to know. Uh, the other issue you brought up was, um, help me, it was a long question. <laughs> that was mainly it. You addressed it. Well, and I think it could also limit just kids getting into college, period, if they're not graduating on the recommended plan, because a lot of the students, colleges require that. That was, that was my issue. As, as Evan pointed out, I went to Dartmouth. Uh, you have to, and, and, and please, the, the chancellor's here, and so let's make, let's give him something tough here. Uh, in order to admit a, a young person to your university, they have to at least be on the recommended plan. Isn't that correct? I went to Dartmouth. They don't care whether you went on the recommended plan or not. The requirement is, obviously, that you have done well, and, and ACT and, and SAT mean a lot to this institution. But so let's use metrics that really matter to young people and, uh, and not artificialize the whole thing. When you say, Mr. Chairman, that your views on the 10% rule have matured from the time that you opposed it, does that mean that going into this session, if there was a move afoot to overturn the 10% rule, that your maturity means you would oppose it? Or are you still in theory with the people who might want to see it kicked to the curb too? I sort of try to take my lead from the universities, and, and I think this view uh, is particularly relevant given the, the Fisher versus Texas case that's before the Supreme Court now. Right. If the university thinks that the top 10% rule with some alteration is of benefit to them in terms of minority enrollment, I, I, will, I will alter my view and try to help that, that happen. Will that conversation freeze in place until the resolution of the Fisher case, much as there's a discussion that public ed funding may freeze in place until the resolution of the school finance lawsuits? It doesn't need to, and I don't think that it, in, in most cases, I think the legislative branch should not wait for the, the judicial branch. Just go ahead and act. If there's an idea that, that right. we think uh, has some currency and effectiveness. Uh, I'm perfectly happy to do something on the top 10% rule. Will it be a complete uh, uh, negation of it? At this point, I think maybe not. Okay. Other questions for the chairman? Mr. Fitzpatrick in the back. You can use your outside voice if you want, whatever you want to do. That's fine. How long is your question? <laughs> well, I'll take notes. First of all, I think, uh, I think wearing a toga and shotgunning beers are probably great preparation for the Texas legislature. <laughs> Apparently um, effective. Um, thank, thanks for your kind words about early college high schools. I, I think there's a lot of private foundations that we work with that would welcome, a, you know, continuing the partnership um, with the Texas legislature. My question is about your philosophy about community colleges. Great. Um, when you look at the different roles that community colleges play in the state of Texas, from workforce preparation and partnering with employers for short-term economic development and workforce training, being the primary access point for first-generation you know, Texans, yep. and then the transfer function. How do you think the current community college system is set up? Do you think it's appropriately funded? And what's your vision or philosophy, or is it still evolving, about how you see community colleges fitting into the system that you so eloquently talked about earlier. Fantastic question. Increasingly part of any conversation on higher ed, community colleges. Absolutely, yeah. and my philosophy about community colleges actually probably would take more time than his question. Um, because I think there's so much of what we do now and so much of the value that we have to impart in the future is community colleges 
to a very great extent that are going to make higher education available to young people who otherwise would not be able to avail themselves. 75% uh, about of the young people who begin higher education in the state start in the community college. Their performance going forward is, is very well. Workforce preparation is, is, is very good. When we talk about the transitional sense, it's the community college that I think that is best equipped for those remedial things that have to go into college that we have to pay attention to, and apparently increasingly, when young people go to college. Um, I think community college is going to play a big role in some initiatives that have taken on some, some primacy when you talk about, um, when you talk about a $10,000 degree. One of the models I've seen, and I think there will be several of them, are going to be dual credit with the community college, going into community college attendance with a healthy online uh, segment, and then sort of transitioning into universities in very many cases. I think that is a great model. It won't be the only one, but obviously community colleges are a huge part of that. When we talk about workforce preparation and, and career and technical education, I would, should have a bill, um, I think in the next week or so, you're, and, and I, I've never had a press conference over a bill. I think I'm going to this one because I think it's going to be seminal in some ways. You're all invited to the press conference. But it, it is going to, to start uh, career and technical enterprises and have a complete pathway built upon both academic preparation and, and a career and technical pathway. The alignment of those is geared very much toward the community college to continue the education toward certification and, and career preparedness as well as an academic transition, which is going to be, it's going to be interesting to do because we would like for it to, to prepare a young person, not just for the community college, but if there is a change of heart somewhere, into the university. Now, we talked about graduation rates or completion rates into four years. The completion rates at the community colleges across the state is actually quite a bit lower right. on average. Um, in fact, the Tech Association of Business put up some billboards, you may recall, last year, not mocking exactly, but noting with some skepticism the success of the community college systems in getting kids in and out. You know, you're talking about single-digit completion rates right. in some cases. Should we be concerned about that? Should we be concerned? Yeah, some people are concerned. Should we always be trying to do better and increase those graduation rates? Yeah. But let me tell you about an experience I had with, with a welding program uh, in, at Frank Phillips College in Border. And there was a great deal of criticism because they, they're perfectly, they can take people to certification and in some of the programs around the state all the way to American Shipbuilding and uh, API certification. And that criticism was, well, these, we're, not, we're not getting anybody graduating. These programs might be a failure. I would argue that they are a profound success because what's happening is, and particularly in today's labor market, is young people are learning the programs are so good, in fact, that folks are getting a job after a year or a year and a half, and that's what they're there for in the first place. So maybe that's a measure of success. That is a, absolutely a measure of success. Got it. Okay. Other questions for the chairman? Ms. McDonald. Now, she's out of the private college world, so be careful. Okay. This may actually be a shotgunning a beer question. Yeah. <laughs> Only white togas, as a matter of fact. Nothing else counts. Togas are important. Um, having graduated from uh, one of this country's great liberal arts universities, I was wondering if you could tell us what you feel is the importance of the liberal arts in higher education? 
What is the importance of the liberal arts in higher education? It is, it is education, which is its own benefit sometimes. It's a preparation to make those choices and inform choices as we go forward. Um, I didn't, I didn't uh, de decide, determine, designate what my major was till I was probably a junior or senior. There's no deficit there. And then, and then you make your choices, and then I chose a career path that had nothing to do with my major. And, and education has a great deal of value when it comes to things like critical thinking, the ability to read and interpret and, and, and to write and things like that, which is valuable to anybody. Take a lot of people in technical disciplines, be they medicine and engineering and things like that, probably some of the worst writers in America. Great engineers and great physicians and, and, and people like that. Uh, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a great education. For me, it's not the right one for everyone. Take one more. We have one more. Mr. Keene, here in the front. Just to take you away from education, Mr. Chairman of Water, I hear a lot of talk. Governor Dewar is talking about a bank, water bank, and that's an issue in West Texas. Do you have any thinking how that issue may flow during the session? Right, you will chair higher ed, but of course you'll have to vote on a whole bunch of other issues. You have opinions, so. What about that? Me, opinions. Uh, I, very, I don't ever really talk around the state without talking about water. I come from the panhandle that has an aquifer that is non-rechargeable. And, and for those people who have not seen the, the, the Ken Burns PBS show about, about the Dust Bowl, it's one of the greatest pieces of documentary television that's ever been put on TV at a very important time in our country. You're admitting to watching PBS, you're gonna get a primary opponent. <laughs> At, I have, I, I've, I've watched a few minutes of, of uh, what is it, Swamp Men and, and <laughs> Okay, you're safe. That's fine. That, 70, that 70s show. Um, water in some ways, there is no more important subject than, than water because without it, we have no livability whatsoever in, in the areas in which those deficits can occur, which includes places like Travis County and Bayer County. And, and so we have to deal with that, and we have to deal with it somewhat holistically, even though the nature of, of the hydrology and, and supply challenges around the state are entirely different. We are going to have to fund the water infrastructure fund going forward. In 30 years, it's gotta be $53 billion available. A good part of that is, is going to be put up by cities and, and water districts and things like that. If we don't do it to create the supply that we're going to have to have, and we know we're going to have to have it, in 30 years we're left with the option then of bonding it. And, and we can do that. And what's going to happen is what's going to drive that bonding are the urban areas of the state, even though deficits more likely will occur in some of the rural parts of the state. And what that bonding is going to do, and it's going to be a lot of it, it's going to, to appropriate forward in, in years forward things that then become the number one priority in funding is first we have to deal with that bonded debt before we do public education, higher education, and, and health care. And, and I have a great sense of immediacy about it because 30 years is going to be here before anybody knows it and we need to be prepared for it. But because on, in reservoirs, and they're gonna to have to be something in the neighbor of three dozen of them around the state, 
you probably couldn't, if you really started substantive work on a reservoir today, you would get a drop of water out of it for about 30 years. And so we need to start today, and we need, it's going to be sort of an evergreen and revolving fund, and there are going to be some complexities because it's going to be loaned out in the intervening 30 years, but when it's time to build a big reservoir over the Metroplex, the money has got to be there. And there are a lot of issues when you talk about re remediation and compensation and things like that. But, uh, but we need to be starting right now. And, and I think the governor is, is he, his suggestion is not perfect at this point, but he's absolutely on point about where we need to work this session. Well, there's water on college campuses, Mr. Keene, so I suppose your question wasn't entirely off point. Um, uh, I appreciate your asking it, as I appreciate all your questions. And Mr. Seliger, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Good luck and the hard work you're going to do. Thank you for having appreciate me on again. Appreciate you being here, Mr. Seliger. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Enjoy it again, as always. This Trib Live event was recorded in front of a live audience and was generously supported by AT&T, Christus Health, BP, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Texas Coalition of Dental Service Organizations and also by Educate Texas. For more information on the Texas Tribune and the dozens of free Trib Live events the Tribune hosts each year, go to texastribune.org.